Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. In our final message of this week in our series, He Made Me Human, Dr. Neufeld will take us through Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 to verse 22. So let's begin our study in this lesson entitled, The Earth is the Lord's. The Bible often moves very quickly from describing a broad cultural depiction of the times in which people live to a real-life story of individual people who lived in those times. For instance, the book of Judges describes a culture that was descending into the Dark Ages, but the book of Ruth describes the life of one widow who lived during those days and how her personal story of faithfulness brought renewal and hope and eventually the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. See, in that sense, the Bible is very different from almost every other history book that you'll read. Most history books step back and simply give you a macro picture, the great sweeping changes in history, but that's not an accurate picture of what times were like. Because all times are made up of people and people who lived out their individual lives and either succumbed to the times or who lived in faithfulness to God in the midst of evil times. And so the book of Genesis, after having described the development of the first human culture and shown us the tale of two cities, if you will, the the city of God and the city of man, and the near extinction of the godly line of Seth, the Bible now concentrates on one man. His name is Noah, and he is no insignificant man. Not only is he the only survivor of his generation, we might argue that Noah is one of the most significant people who ever lived. Indeed, he is among the six most important people mentioned in the Bible. Now, I would say that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus are the six principal figures in the entire Bible around whom the entire story of redemption turns. Now, I say that because each of these men have a covenant attached to their lives. In fact, they're the only six men who have a covenant attached to their lives. That is, God makes a binding agreement, not just with them, but with a whole human race. So, for example, Abraham is told that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Moses receives a law, and not just for Israel, but in the Ten Commandments, he receives God's law for the entire human race. David receives a promise that his throne will be established as the throne to govern the earth for all times. And Jesus, the Son of the living God, in the new covenant, through his blood, fulfills all of the other covenants in the Bible and the promises of Genesis 3.15. But I've gotten way ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning. See, Adam is important because of two reasons. First, God entered into a covenant with him. Oh, I know that the word covenant is not used in the story of Adam, but the concept is implied. God makes an agreement with Adam that he, as the federal head of the human race, is to rule over the works of God's hands, ruling on God's behalf and for his glory. Now, this expectation, this covenant has never been revoked. It's still what human beings have been created for. But it's not until Christ comes again that this covenant can and will be fulfilled. Now, the second reason for Adam's importance is that his sin is reckoned to the entire human race. It is through Adam that death reigns. Again, Christ becomes our second Adam, the federal head of a new humanity, and through him, life, not death, reigns. 
But again, that brings the story to its climax. Nonetheless, I make the point that Adam is one of the central figures of the human race. So the second central figure of the human race will be Noah. In Matthew 24, verse 37, Jesus said that the cultural background at the time of Noah or the sinfulness that pervaded human society in his days will be very similar to the human sinfulness just before the second coming of Christ. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So that will mean that for all who long for the coming of Christ, the days of Noah ought to be of keen interest to us. But there are other reasons why Noah is so significant to the biblical story. The Apostle Peter mentions Noah in this regard. I'm reading from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter says, If he, that is, if God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and then so forth. Now, from that short line, we get a picture of Noah that the Genesis text does not provide us with. He was, according to Peter, a herald of righteousness, or a declarer of righteousness, or the last of the godly line who faithfully preached and declared God's intention for the human race. Furthermore, the time that Noah took to build the ark was a very important time. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 speaks about that time when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. See, we can only imagine how the building of the ark and the preaching of Noah worked hand in hand. Because the actual project of the ark took time, each day was used as an act of kindness from God, giving the human race time to reconsider their ways. Now, the only other place where Noah is mentioned in the New Testament is in Hebrews 11 verse 7. There we're told by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. Now that passage gives us some insight into the kind of man that Noah was. He was a man of faith. He believed God even when the things God spoke were yet unseen. He was justified by faith, and God used him as a principal character to condemn the world. In short, Noah seems very much like the picture we get of one of the Old Testament prophets. He warned the world that God would not tolerate sin, he predicted judgment, and he called upon people to repent. I think it not improper to argue that, in the history of the human race, Noah is one of its first prophets. The thing about prophets is that almost all of them were abused. Elijah became a hunted man, hiding from the king and the queen. Jeremiah was thrown into prison. Isaiah was cruelly put to death. In Matthew chapter 23, 34 to 35, Jesus seems to sum up the sad history of the prophets. Here's what he said. Therefore I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. See, given that reality, I can only imagine that Noah lived in a very difficult time. I think it's safe to say that he was persecuted. I think it's safe to say that he had witnessed the murder of many a righteous man or a woman. I think it's safe to say that he watched in horror as every last vestige of the people of God were ruthlessly wiped out or abandoned their faith until Noah was left alone. 
I think it's safe to say that he must have been overwhelmed that God had preserved his life, and by some miracle of God, he and his family were the last of the godly line. Well, that's the picture of the man. But let's step back for a moment and get a picture of the times in which he lived. Genesis 6, 5 to 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, from this passage, let's notice several things. First, please notice that from the time of Cain through successive generations, the effects of the fall were progressive. And so as civilization progressed, so did sin. And gradually, sin consumed every corner of human civilization. Now, how long did that take? I don't think that we can be sure since the genealogy that we have in our Bible might not be a complete one, but may only highlight the actual figureheads of the human race. Perhaps these names are only the names of principal characters. That would mean that thousands and thousands of years actually progressed from Adam to Noah. I imagine a world technologically advanced, perhaps it developed in ways that is even advanced beyond our own. But it is in this advanced culture with long lifespans and a fast-growing population, human advancement now made it possible no longer even to rely on God. Such is the majesty and the horror of people created in the image of God and yet fallen. And what happens next sounds surprising. Verse 6 says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man. Now, the Hebrew word for sorry is sometimes translated as repented. The Lord repented of making man. And if you know your Bible well, that sounds impossible. How can God seem to be saying he made a mistake? Well, of course he didn't. I'll explain that when we come back. As we come to the account of this man, Noah, one of the most important figures in the Bible, Dr. Neufeld has given us a great insight into the context in which he lived. We also recognize here the significance of the covenant between God and the men he chose throughout the scriptures. Further, there is a vivid description of a world that was full of increasing evil and God's reaction to it. When we come back, we'll see what this passage in Genesis reveals about God and his plan in the redemptive story of mankind. At Back to the Bible Canada, we are so honored when we hear how this ministry is impacting lives and deepening your walk with Christ. One listener wrote, thank you for continuing to spread his word to the world. Your messages are always on point, impactful, and inspiring, true to His Word. May you continue to reach out and give others hope and promise, the hope and promise that only comes from accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've been encouraged, inspired, or moved in any way by a message from this ministry, we'd love to hear about it. To express your encouragement in the form of a gift, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Or to leave your testimony, email info at backtothebible.ca or visit backtothebible.ca and click on contact. We'd love to hear from you. (laughs) 
Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, hear me, or shadow due to change. Psalm 33 verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all by purpose. You know, taken together, all those verses make a very clear and compelling case. God never changes. When God makes plans, he never changes his plans. When he declares something from ancient times, that counsel which he has imposed upon himself will never alter. And that, according to Malachi, is why Israel, when she sinned, was not consumed. It was because God had made an eternal covenant with them. He never reverses course. More so, Jesus spoke like that. Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus, speaking of the end of the age, says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The reason we know that Christ will return and the saints will inherit the kingdom is directly related to what the Bible declares to be the nature of God. God is unchangeable, and when he makes a plan, nothing but nothing can alter that plan. And that's why we find the words in Genesis 6-6 so shocking. The Lord was sorry or repented that he had made man. I mean, how can that possibly be? Now, it was John Kelvin who said, The repentance here ascribed to God does not properly belong to him, that is, to his essential nature, but as reference to our understanding of him. Let me try to put that into a contemporary sentence. God is expressing himself in a way that we will understand. Of course, God knew that the human story after Adam would lead to this zenith of evil in human history. But God wants us to know that he does not respond to human evil in a cavalier fashion by simply saying, everything is going according to plan. Well, yes, everything is going according to plan. But God is deeply grieved by the destruction of human beings. After all, he made them in his image, and God's grief can be compared to human sorrow, especially the kind of sorrow we feel when we repent of something. Think of it this way. Before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., God had been telling Israel that unless they repent, they were going to suffer horribly. And of course, as we know, they did not repent, and God then brought about the suffering he said was going to happen. And then in the midst of that sorrow, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33 says, For God does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Now, what can that mean? Wasn't it God's will to destroy Jerusalem? Well, yes, it was. God told us it was. But to say that he doesn't do it willingly is to use the language of emotion, not the language of the eternal purposes of God. That is, God's heart was moved as he did not destroy Israel with any sense of delight. And that's the lesson that we learn from the flood. 
The day of judgment does arrive, and God's eternal plans are fulfilled in the destruction of the wicked. But God never rubs his hand in glee and saying, I just love wiping evil civilizations out. See, when God visits humanity in wrath, God does so in keeping with his eternal plans laid out from before the foundations of the world. But when those plans are executed, God grieves deeply over the sufferings even of the wicked. So what do we learn from that? Well, first, it is possible to exhaust the patience of God. The ancient world did, and they were destroyed. Second, there is a judgment coming on the earth when Jesus Christ comes again. It will be a day of splendor, but it will also be a day of darkness and gloom for the majority of the people of this earth. And God grieves because he loves us so. And third, nevertheless, the entire Bible account teaches us that God either punishes sins or brings about repentance from sin. That's what the story of Noah teaches us. If people do not repent, they are judged. All of history tells us that all people move in one of two directions. They either move toward their knees in genuine remorse, entrusting their souls to the kindness of God, or they move toward the punishing hand of God. I mean, think about our own country, Canada, the nation we love and the nation that God loves. It will either experience a revival or it will experience the judgment of God. It cannot be anything other than one of those two realities. And that's also true of individual lives. You will either surrender to Christ and receive his forgiveness, or you will experience judgment. But now the final important lesson from this text. God will never allow his people to be extinguished. Let's read verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The term blameless doesn't mean sinless. The word is related to a description of this man from the last verse, and that's in verse 8. There it was said that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is what God offers to all who repent of sins and live with an expectancy of God's favor, and that's how Noah lived. I think the most telling line is the one found in verse 9. Noah, it says, walked with God. And in the last chapter, in 5 verse 22, we're told that Enoch walked with God. And in Psalm 1-1, the very first line of the Psalms reads this way, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So that's the contrast. And I think that gives us insight. The delight of Noah's life must have been his God. He found pleasure, joy, moment-by-moment purpose in the God who made him. He reveled in God's promises, delighted in God's commands. He walked with God. So let's continue. We're going to go to verse 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We now come to the last lesson of this text. The earth is the Lord's. The earth belongs to the Lord. The great illusion that is felt among many in the rebellious part of humanity is that we have wrestled with God and we have overcome him. 
Friedrich Nietzsche was the well-known German philosopher and atheist from the late 1800s. In his parable of the madman, he puts words into the lips of the human race, or what I would call the city of man. Here's what Nietzsche wrote. We have killed God, you and I. We are his murderers. Do you not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? And then with a confident air, he writes, What are the churches now if they are not the tombs and the sepulchres of God? And with this sense of confidence, Nietzsche went on to proclaim that man would be able to overcome our more baser impulses and we would establish our own morality, live beyond our lower nature, and become super beings. Nietzsche sounds so much like the promise of the serpent in the garden. You will become like God. You will know good and evil on your own terms. What is it that we learn from Noah? We learn that we may rage against God and claim that we have wrestled this earth from his hands and live life on our own terms, but God has never relinquished his hold on this earth. The earth is the Lord's, and in the end, the earth will be filled with the glory of God, and the earth will perfectly express all that God made it to express, and a redeemed humanity who walks with God will inherit this earth. John, the story of Noah is incredible, and you've brought it to light. But I'm thinking back to when I was a Sunday school kid, and I learned the story of Noah and the cartoon characters and the two-by-two and all that type of thing. But here is something incredibly significant is happening, uh, recognizing who God is and his relationship to humanity. I think what's happening here is that humankind is marching towards the great judgment day. I can only imagine that at the time of Noah, that people would have thought that because God is gracious and kind and not willing that any should perish, that the day of judgment would never be at hand. And, And in that sense, the days of Noah are precisely as they are today. We are moving ever nearer to the day in which God comes to visit in wrath. And we should remember that God will hold the human race and individual human beings accountable. Uh, There is a day of mercy, and that's the day that we're now experiencing. But there is an end to the day of mercy. It must come, and God will visit us. And so if there's any message that we need to hear is that repentance needs to be our number one priority today. Nothing is more important than we settle accounts with God today. That's the message. What a great study to conclude this week in Genesis 4 through 6. We've learned so much today about the nature of God and how he deals righteously with humanity. There is a day of judgment that awaits all of us. And for believers, we have the amazing promise of redemption through Christ. Well, don't miss next week as Dr. Neufeld begins our fifth and final week in our series on Genesis, He Made Me Human. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada ministers God's Word that we might become a people for His glory. Our teaching reaches individuals and congregations of faith, but homes of faith need God's truth as well. Households are the first places we learn to read Scripture, say our prayers, and share the works of God. To help your family's spiritual growth, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is releasing an exciting new resource titled, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents to help their families grow in their walk with the Lord. 
Back to the Bible Canada believes these precious times of sharing together spiritually are crucial. So we invite you to request your copy of Four Minutes for Frazzled Families as our free gift to you and your family by visiting backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.